0: As I think you all know by now, um, I'm not a, a scientist, I didn't do a science-based um, studies at university. I'm on the art side, and my first love in that sense is history, politics, that type of thing. And, and although I did do science at school, as most of us had to do, and occasionally I do read things, and I've been reading recently, and I don't claim to understand how all, far from it, but I've been reading some things recently where there are physicists, astronomers, quantum physics, all the rest of it, and they've been reflecting on what the discoveries that are being made about not just our solar system, although that itself is impressive, but beyond that, even to the fact that they would say that you can still see how you do that, I don't know, obviously through um, radio telescope type technology, but you can still see the flash of light Um, that was at the dawn of time. And, and and as Christians, we have to say, well, <laughs> what does the Bible tell us? But at the beginning, what did God say? Let there be light. And there was light. We have nothing to fear from the discoveries of the wonders of How people interpret it, we might not always agree. But one of the other things is that they're working out, and they've spoken about this for some time, that if you were to take, and I'm trying to understand this in a kind of layman's way, if you were to take everything that actually exists, all the matter, the substance, you know, the kind of hard stuff, and if you were to pack all that into a box, then that box would sit here, for instance, in this church. This a wee box, shoebox kind of size, would sit there on the floor, and yet there would all be this other stuff that they don't really know what it is, what it is all surrounding it. Does that make sense? Of course there's <laughs> no. It's a bit early. quite past eleven in the morning. I haven't had a coffee. It's a wee bit much. <laughs> But they talk about this light matter and dark matter. That's why I've been reading these things, because they talk about light matter, that there is other things that are not made of atoms that inhabit the universe. And they're not very sure what that is, but they know it is. They talk about these black holes and all the rest of it, it's all that kind of stuff. But actually, as I say, if they were to put all the stuff, obviously, I'm just using picture-like, they put all that together, you'd have a box, a small box, And yet, it would all be this other stuff, light and darkness. And as I've, in some small way, tried to reflect on that, that that again should not surprise us. The God who is the source of light. What does John in those well-known verses at the beginning of his, his, his gospel tells us? The word, in the beginning was the word. And the word was with God. The word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The one who is in all and through all, who is beyond all, and yet can be known in reality, that one, the one who is light, who inhabits all, and we can't really understand that. It's also the God who entered into darkness. The darkness of this world. And I would suggest we see that lived out, of course, in the realities of our world and indeed our lives. As I said in our prayers, I'm sure we've been deeply upset by what we've seen in television and the consequences of the earthquake in Turkey and in northern Syria, and the sense the darkness of that, the destructiveness of that, the death and the decay. And indeed, as things are coming out now, those who built buildings that weren't able to withstand, or at least be to make some effort of withstanding, people seemingly already have been arrested because of that. And you've heard of looting and other things that are terrible. But you've also seen the opposite you've seen amazing light, people's care and concern and generosity. The man who was the writer, who was the artist, did you see him on television, who had gone away down, who lived in Turkey, who went away down, and who was desperate to try and rescue people? And that shot of him from, on television the other night, not last night, but the night before, and the poor man, completely exhausted and yet driven by the desire to help his fellow humans. Light shining in the darkness, and the darkness can't overcome it. And nor in truth does it really understand it. And we know that in our own life, the tensions at times and the the challenges of life, the great times of sorrow, the times of darkness of our own life. life. And yet then the the, the light that pierces that gloom, whether that's a phone call, whether that's an intervention in some kind of way, whether that's just the sunshine breaking through or, or whatever it may be, it's as we've come with our hearts troubled and we've read scripture and we've heard a hymn, we've heard a song or something Else, and we just sense that light piercing the gloom, bringing hope as we were singing earlier in that lovely hymn in the midst of our fears. Light shining in the darkness, and the darkness cannot overcome it nor understand it. And it was the conviction, and so that big, and I am not an expert. If you want to discover more of all that science stuff, well. Don't ask me. (laughs) Go online. Google it. But nonetheless, as as these things are discovered and as people speak about these things, and as we see these realities being lived out in our life and even within the tensions of our own lives, the writer of the book of Hebrews wants to bring the light of God to bear on it. We've mentioned before that the people he's writing to, this is the the second half of the first century, well into the second half of the first century. The Roman Empire was never perfect, far from it, and was never always peaceful and wonderful. But towards the second part of the second half of the first century, dark deeds began to become more obvious. We've already mentioned the well-known example of Emperor Nero, but not just him. There was a rising sense of tension within the empire. There was going to be rising persecution, not just of the occasional Christian, but of the church. And that really began to be unfolded as they went into the second century. Society itself was being challenged, and the structures of society were under pressure. And the way to answer that, as far as the Roman authorities were concerned, were to clamp down and to use the law and military force to try and keep things in place and to pick out enemies and distract people by saying, well, you see, the real problem is that person or that country or that situation, does that not ring a bell in the 21st century? And in that increasing sense of darkness and foreboding where hope seemed to begin to become pressurized, the writer of the book of Hebrews is giving a lecture, in a sense, a lecture to God's people who are struggling with that and also with the tensions within the life of the church and within their own lives. And he's wanting to remind them and challenge them to turn to the light and not to retreat into the shadowlands and the darkness of their own failed religion or their own failed philosophy. And that is very much the background. And and, and I do say, unless we can really kind of get a handle on that, we are going to struggle with some of these less well-known parts of the book of Hebrews. And that's what he's trying this particular part and trying the whole letter to remind people. He's reminding people, as we turn to particularly the passage set before us this morning, he's wanting to remind people, use the story of Israel, both as a warning but also as an example. He has already done that at the latter part of chapter 3. He says in verse 7, so as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation. I said, their hearts are always going astray and they've not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And the story, of course, is of the people of Israel being brought out of Egypt and in the journey through the wilderness to the land of promise. A journey that even taking the detour route that they took, a detour route that was meant, that was given to them by God to protect them from the Philistines and from the armed forces that would have really made mince of them. And so God was protecting them and providing for them but getting them to go away round the way to go up into Israel, into the land of Canaan. But that journey nonetheless should have taken less than a year. But it took 40 years. And why did it take 40 years? Well, we know the story, because they hardened their hearts. They moaned and complained. Verse 16 of chapter 3, Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Therefore, he says, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. And then in verse 9 of chapter 4, there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works just as God did from his. What is the writer's offering? He's saying, look, in the midst of a world of trouble, in the midst of a world of strife, in the midst of the world of light and darkness and all the tensions it caused, and let's be honest, in a sense, the earthquake that happens in creation, the, the clashing together and the pulling apart of the Teutonic break plates that cause that turmoil, that is a picture, a very real picture, a very tangible thing, that's a picture of the clash between the God of all creation and the principalities and powers of this present age, the darkness, the light and the darkness coming together and causing a clash. How do we find rest in the midst of all of that? Well, of course, some people look to all sorts of things. They look to carbon-free, carbon-neutral. There's a desire to put the clock back, in a sense, really, to try to recreate the world before the fall. They don't use that language, but that's what they're wanting. They wanted to go back to a world before the fall, before we messed things up. And, And we'd have a lot of sympathy for that. And there's this yearning and desire that if only we can do that, that we'll be able to somehow recreate Eden and recreate this beautiful world where everything will be perfect, everything will be in its place, and there'll be peace and rest and harmony and all the rest of it. Well, my friends, I'm not against, you know, being concerned about the creation. Far from it. Or against being careful about what we do to it. But we will never, humanly speaking, be able to do that. Because there's light and there's darkness. Other people see it in philosophy. Philosophy. Other people see it in political change. Other people see it in other religions. Whatever it may be, people will turn to all sorts of things to try to bring us to that place where we are at rest, where things are the way they should be, where there's harmony and peace and security and stability. A longing in the human heart for the light. And the writer here, as he does throughout the whole letter, here in particular, is reminding us that that rest has been offered. Verse 2 of chapter 4 For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was no value to them because they did not share the faith. Of those who obeyed just for a little minute, and I appreciate this is probably for some of us a wee bit out there in our thinking, I do understand that's not the easiest thing. some ways this is what happens when you start to see you're going to preach through something. if just you could just jump over this bit and move on to kind of, but we can't and we shouldn't. Turn back if you want to in the book, to the book of Genesis. I'm always going back to the book of Genesis because it's vital. And we read at the end of the story of creation, the book of Genesis in chapter two. The end of chapter 1, actually. And we read in verse 31 of chapter 1, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So in the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. The Shabbat, the day of rest. We're told in the book of Genesis that on that seventh day, God saw he had rested from all that he had done, and he saw that it was good, it was perfect, it was the very thing that within the human heart we have a longing for. That place which is right, which is perfect, which is safe, which is secure, which is in order, that longing for rest. Which is not not doing anything, but just that, well, you know what, I mean, do you? Just put our feet up. But that sense of... So, turn to the book of Exodus and the Ten Commandments. And Exodus chapter 20. And we have the Ten Commandments, and we have here God speaking to the people. I am the Lord your God, verse 1, verse 2 of chapter 20, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything. Verse 7, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. And then in verse eight, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all your work, and the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, but He rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. There was to be a significance—a day set apart a holy day, a day that was to be different from everything else. And on that day, particularly, we were called to remember God, who God is, what he has done, and the fact that in him, and that's definitely the language and understanding here, that in him, Israel were to find their rest in the midst of the turmoil of the world, in the midst of the journey through the wilderness, the God, the creator, who had done everything, and who in the seventh day rested because it was good, it was perfect, it was finished. In him, Israel was to find their rest, their security, their comfort, their hope, their sense of well-being, their sense of who they are and who they were. The confidence for the future, all of that. And there was to be a particular day set apart for doing that. In fact, so serious was that day to be kept that if you want to flick on the book of Exodus to chapter 31 and verse 12, listen to this. Chapter 1 and verse 12, Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, You must observe my Sabbaths. This will be a sign between me and you for the generations to come so that you may know that I am the Lord who makes you holy. Observe the Sabbath because it's holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it is to be put to death. Those who do any work on that day must be cut off from the people. For six days work is to be done, but the seventh day is the day of Sabbath rest holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day is to be put to death. The Israelites are to observe the Sabbath, celebrating it for generations to come as a lasting covenant. It will be a sign between me and the Israelites forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and in the seventh day he rested and was refreshed a very solemn thing. Why is it so serious? Well, you see, my friends, it's so serious because if we lose our sense of rest in God, then actually, and this is the reality, all we have is not light but darkness, not life but death. No, I'm not suggesting that we apply that law on a Sunday, of course not. But there is a solemn warning given by the Creator God that if humanity does not find its rest, its security, its hope, its confidence, its identity in Him, then all else will fail and falter, and death will be the consequences and of course, it's not just based on a, 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 a day even and a, and a geographical location. Let me read to you some other verses later on in God's Word. Psalm 60, true. Truly, my soul finds rest in God. My salvation comes from Him. Truly, He is my rock and my fortress. He is my fortress, and I will never be shaken. Verse 5, yes, my soul finds rest in God. My hope comes from him. That reminder that that rest, that Shabbat, is not just a day and a calendar or a distant event from the people of Israel's history, but it's a reality. My soul finds its Shabbat in God. He is my fortress, and my rest is found in him alone. And, of course, that was the plea of the prophets, Isaiah. For instance, I'm just reading some verses, Isaiah 30 and verse 15. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel, says, "'In repentance and rest is your salvation, and quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none.'" of it. And again, these verses from the book of the prophet Jeremiah, this is what the Lord says, "'Stand at the crossroads and look, ask for the ancient paths, ask where the good way is, and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it.'" And then he goes on to say, "'What is the consequences?' Now, we might be sitting listening to all of this and think, well, what's this about? Well, listen to these words, not from the prophet, but from the Word, who is the light of life. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you what? Rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble at heart, and you will find what? Rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And so, all this Sabbath talk, all this emphasis in this chapter, and we'll return to it next week in expand upon it. All of that is to do with finding our Sabbath rest in Him who is the light of life. And the sad reality is that even professing Christians don't always do that. And I, as much as anybody else, put my hands up to that. And that's why, back to Hebrews, that's why the rite of the Hebrews continually warns, if you're going to live out the life of faith in the world in which you're living in, the right of the Hebrews is saying to the people who's reading this, and God is saying to us living in the world in which we are living, if you're going to have that sense of security, confidence, of hope, of courage, of well-being, of knowing who you are, knowing where you're about, and knowing where you're going, and all that, if you're going to have all of that, you're only going to find that in God and in a relationship with him. He is your rest. And if that's not the case, then you're going to be restless. You're going to be troubled. You're going to be tossed about by every wind and wave. Look at the history of Israel. They shall never enter my rest. We're told that, are 6 of chapter 4 in the Hebrews, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good Jews proclaimed them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certainty, calling it today. And this he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted from the psalm we read earlier at the beginning of the service, today if you hear his voice, do not harden, your hearts. There remains, then, a Sabbath rest for the people of God. I'm going to draw to a close here. There's more we'll look at next week. I was conscious we probably would find this quite heavy going. Are you—and I'm saying this to myself as much as anybody are you at rest with God this morning? Are you? Are you ready to meet with God this morning? I don't just mean in the service. But suppose an earthquake took place. And today was your last day of mortal living. Or even if it wasn't an earthquake in terms of physical things, we all know of earthquakes that can happen to our life. Can walk out that doctor's surgery and an earthquake can have taken place. There can be a breakdown in a relationship. There can be a whole host of things, and there will be that will shake the very foundations of who we are. Where then is our rest? Where then is our security? Where then is our confidence and hope? Is it in the God, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who is the light of life? Because if it's not, my friends, I tell you, all there is is the shadowlands and darkness. We must therefore make every effort to enter that rest so that we will not perish. And my prayer this morning, as we sing a song now, inviting us to sit and to be in God's presence and to sit at His feet, my prayer this morning, there's no one listening, sitting here or listening to this wherever else, that we do not know that our rest, that our Shabbat is with God with the good news of God, the good news of Jesus Christ, the good news of why he came and wanted, and I'm not going to start going through all of that with you good folks as one. Well. No disrespect, if you don't know now what that is all about, well, I failed, and no disrespect, you've not been listening, <laughs> and I don't believe that's not the case. That's the great news that we've got to give to our world that's dying. If you think that earthquake's bad, the Bible tells us things are going to go a heck of a lot worse heck a lot worse. Men and women will flee to the mountains and cry upon them to shelter them as the world crumbles round about them. And all that precious security that our children have built up in their job and in their homes and in their careers and everything else, I tell you before God, the day will come sooner or later when that will collapse. You know how much we borrowed as a country last month in December. Twenty-six billion pounds. We now own over a trillion pounds as a country. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. People look to this or to that, to other. If only we do this. If only we have that. They'll all be different. It will only be different when God comes in majesty and might and there be a new heaven and a new earth and the scroll of human history is wound up. So where is your rest today and for eternity?